So today I'm joined by Jill Bodensteiner, and Jill is the athletics director at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Um, today's podcast will look, take a bit of a different angle. Today we will take a deeper look at the critical role that NCAA committees play in the management and oversight of college sports. In particular, the recent committee work done to create a way forward for names, images, and likenesses. At all levels, presidents and athletic directors work together on committees that build the framework for how the NCAA works. Many think the 400 plus staff members who work at the NCAA headquarters in Indianapolis believe that they are the ones developing the policies. In fact, some believe that President Mark Emmert is or should be like an NFL commissioner, the final arbiter of all decisions. We are here to dispel that myth. So Jill is a member of the Division I Names, Images, and Likenesses Legislative Solutions Working Group and a chair of the subcommittee on group licensing. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Karen. I'm always uh, so jazzed about this topic. I'm always happy to, to speak with someone about name, image, and likeness. So a big, a big announcement came out this week, and it seemed like a lot of people were very excited that all of a sudden you had jumped from A to Z in this process in the span of one day. And that, in fact, is not what's happened. So let's set the record straight. What happened this week? So to tell you what happened this week, let me back up a little bit. It was about a year ago today that I got a call from Stan Wilcox at the NCAA asking if I would serve on what is called the Federal and State Legislative Working Group of the NCAA. And as you uh, astutely pointed out in your intro, you know, the NCAA is a membership association. The people complain about NCAA rules, the members pass the rules. Um, so anyway, get this call from Stan and the federal and state legislative working group is a you know, couple key factors. Number one, it's an association wide working group, which means all three divisions are represented on that on that working group. That group was co-chaired by Val Ackerman and Gene Smith. And um, we basically spent from May until October of 2019 debating whether or not we should move this concept of uh, name, image, and likeness forward. Last October, we submitted a recommendation to the NCA Board of Governors, which is also made up of members. And in October of last year, the NCA Board of Governors came out and said, uh, we agree with the guiding principles put forward by the working group. We would like them to continue to explore uh, name, image, and likeness issues. So at that point, another group of committees was formed. And these are what are called the legislative solutions working groups. And these are division specific. So there's a division one legislative solutions working group. Now at this point, we took members from the original group, the division one members, we moved many of them over to the legislative working group. And then we brought in members of the D1 council. So the division one legislative working group is co-chaired by Bob Bowlesby, Commissioner of the Big 12, and Bob had been a member of the original group, and Grace Calhoun, Chair of the Division I Council. Hence, we're merging the federal and state legislative working group with the D1 Council, and as a, as a, a division, Division I, that's the group that's been working on kind of putting meat on the bones of what this proposal could look like. So with that background in mind, what happened this week is that the federal and state legislative working group completed our efforts in a 30-page report that was more, again, guiding principles, 
the recommendations from a big picture perspective, how these decisions sort of fit in existentially in the world of, of NCAA and Capitol Hill and state laws and all of those sort of things. And that report was presented by Val and Jean to the Board of Governors. Board of Governors came back and said, essentially, thank you very much. We wish to continue uh, using these guiding principles uh, sort of in earnest through the Legislative Solutions Working Group. So, so we now I think I can say goodbye to one committee and then I continue on. Um, we had originally developed just some sub-working groups on the Division I group. Uh, we had a, I was actually in the individual licensing group. We had some group licensing conversations and then we had the work product business activities group. Uh, those have sort of, uh, we've remerged as a full group um, and now we're at the point where we've delivered you know, concepts to the conference commissioners and the conferences, the 32 conferences that make up Division One, are now taking the time to look over those concepts. Okay, okay. So the 30-page letter that was released this week really did an excellent job of laying out kind of that path. And I urge people to take some time to read it because it really kind of laid out not only the structural arguments within the NCAA, but it also some ruled out some of the legal arguments that members of the media and others continue to lop onto this. Can you point out one or two of those that, that are really myths that need to be dispelled in this situation? Well, I think, um, you know, I guess that I would say a couple things about the, the report, which I think is, is really, really well done, is there's, I think, a lot of confusion about the expectations on Capitol Hill and what's happening there. And um, I think the report did a nice job of articulating what we're seeking in terms of congressional, right? We have the state preemption issue. Um, we've got, again, a, you know, a, a situation where we could have 50 different state laws uh, on name, image, and likeness. So the importance of understanding and, you know, Karen, I know you kind of geek out on this stuff like I do. This is a little bit akin to the, uh, NLRB decision in the Northwestern case, right? The whole notion of sports is that you compete against one another. And to have the private institutions that are competing against the publics be played under different set of rules is very, very difficult. It's a similar concept here with state preemption. And so I think the report did a nice job. And I should point out that I can't remember the detail to which the report went into this. Um, you know, the legislative, federal and state legislative working group, the association-wide one, we kind of peeled off the presidents uh, to spend a pretty good amount of time thinking through, uh, you know, what, what the federal response and what sort of things we want from the federal government. So I thought that that brought some clarity um, to, to the kind of discussions that are happening on the Hill um, and the sort of things that are important. Um, another one, and I wouldn't say this is major, uh, sort of the First Amendment, the broadcast, um, and the, the, uh, the law on you know, rights of publicity and broadcast rights. I think that's really interesting, and I think that, um, you know, for people who aren't as educated on this topic, you think, oh, good, you know, we're on TV, and that's where all the money comes. Now the student-athletes start getting paid for being on TV, and, and legally, you know, we're fairly certain and feel really comfortable and are, are very comfortable stating that, um, that there's no payment for broadcast rights. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was, that's sort of a myth that I hear about a lot. So those are just a couple things I'd point out. Um, and again, you know, by, by saying those out loud, it kind of maybe shares with our listeners, that's the level of the kind of issues that that committee was working on. Right, right. So right. when I hear from pundits and politicians saying, 
oh, what happened yesterday is that there's no details. What in the heck is the NCA doing? This is so vague. That was not the point of the 30 page paper. We were not supposed to write the rules. That wasn't the role of that committee. So I actually think kudos to, to Val and Jean and the NCA staffers. I thought it was really, uh, really nicely done um, summary of where we've been and where we are. Yeah, and that whole issue of, of who owns the right to, a, to a, a game that's being broadcast live or streamed live, that's, all, that's been almost settled law for a long time, that athletes can't personally, as long as uh, the athlete isn't being put into a situation where they can be exploited for a marketing purpose, really, that's, that's, there's nowhere to go with that. And that's, that's kind of what your committee was saying. Yeah, exactly. Let's close the door on that general public, because <laughs> that's not the law and that's not happening. So let's take a little bit deeper dive. You focused on group licensing, and I know that, that at this point there's been no real resolution on that, but walk us through the, the challenges, but maybe the opportunities too for student athletes on the group licensing side. Yeah, I mean, when I explain um, and what I, how I learned it, really how group licensing works um, is by studying how it works in the pros. And so in the professional leagues, there's a, you know, essentially a union or a trade association that when you become uh, an NFL player, for example, you become a member of the NFL Players Association um, and the Players Association represents all NFL players um, in negotiations, um, you know, with the potential licensor. And so we could say EA Sports or a trading card company. Um, and so... Uh, with a trading card company, for example, you're going to need a license from the players. You're going to need a license from the team because you're using their logos, their marks, their name, um, and you're going to need a license from the NFL. Um, and so these are multiple, uh, multiple licensees in, in the group licensing situation, as opposed to uh, sort of what the, what the working group has said, and I, I think this came out in the 30-page papers when we're talking about individual licensings, that, that's between the student athlete and the licensor. We're not going to let the schools get into that. This is not a thing where we're going to be going to a car company and having uh, St. Joe's sign and allow its marks, logos, and colors to be used along with the student athletes, um, you know, kind of co-licensing. That, that's not happening um, in the individual license space. In the group, you kind of need that. Um, and that's the nature of, of what tend to be, uh, you know, more product, um, product associated licenses. So, um, you know, again, there's, I don't think, and I, I think I read just again, some brief comments from the general public saying group licensing are not, it's not happening. I don't think that's what was said either. I think they said there are some complex issues in determining um, who plays those various roles uh, of the trade association or union, how, what's the involvement of the NCAA, what's the involvement of the institutions, do we have more comfort in involving the institutions in a group license, so I think what, what, what was decided was let's not let the confusing aspects of that stand in the way of the business activity work product and the individual licensing issues, um, which we think we're more ready to get started on, so um, to stick with the football theme, it's, it's it was sort of a punt down the line to continue to talk about those issues. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, it's still very complex and it's a non-unionized environment. So there's no players association to try to advocate for the players. You're every, and every institution is different, whether they're uh, urban or rural or large or small and, and they're in a college town or they're in a big city. Every situation presents each student athlete a different opportunity, which would be impossible to regulate. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And I think, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it goes back to just the degree to which we're protecting. And, and by the way, on both of these committees uh, that I've served on, there, were, there was a wide range of opinions, right? There, that's the beauty of how decisions get made is when people start out disagreeing. And in some cases, uh, disagreeing, uh, you know, with pretty serious uh, voids or, or separation in our arguments. One thing everybody has always agreed on is we're not interested in the model in which student athletes are employees or student athletes are paid. I mean, that's been sort of the absolute stake in the ground that nobody disagrees with. Um, and so there are, you know, you've always got to look at that lens with everything. You know, I, I, I get, I just get a giant kick out of people thinking, oh, this is easy. I can't believe they haven't figured this out yet. It, it's the most complex issue that I've worked on. And look, as a young lawyer, I worked on the merger of Boeing and McDonnell Douglas. And, um, and this is, this is, you know, literally because of legal, you know, competitive recruiting inducements, um, you know, representation of athletes. I mean, there's so many nuances and layers to this. Um, that it's been just a fascinating and really, really complex. But again, when we all agreed on that stake that we are not interested in the pay for play, we are not interested in the employment model, um, some things get dictated from there. And, uh, and I think that was really, you know, that was something we agreed upon at the very beginning. Yeah, that makes total sense. Another part of the report that I thought was really interesting is how clearly it articulated the growth opportunities that have emerged in the social and digital spaces and how that technology shift is really what seems to be driving all these opportunities for student athletes. You have social media influencers and the ability to, you know, promote the next, uh, next best whatever on, on Instagram. And then you also have this whole idea of digital content and creation and distribution. And this podcast is a very good example of that. I mean, because the technology is so available and, and if all it takes is the student's creativity, so the fact that athletes have that reach now, what issues are you considering that would maybe limit that reach or limit that scope? And, and are there any? So, so first of all, again, as usual, Karen, you're, you're totally on point. Many people thought of this historically, and maybe even as recently as a year ago, as most famous college student athlete on a Wheaties box. You know, that was sort of on the, the, you always hear about the car dealer or the Nike Under Armour Adidas. I mean, that, that was sort of how a lot of people went into this. Are you going to, you know, Aaron Rodgers in a State Farm commercial, uh, you know, Chris Paul and his, it, that was the notion. That's, and that is a sort of a student athlete or famous person uh, model. What we have now is a situation where every college student is a producer of content or could be a producer of content. And so, you know, you don't have to be a superstar who gets called from Los Angeles to get your face on a Wheaties box or be asked to model something. You can have a great personality, uh, a great wit, uh, great poetry, get it and create an Instagram or a YouTube channel. Um, and, and, you know, we've got YouTube camp for six-year-olds being offered all around the country now. So, so we, we old fogies, um, I sort of had an eye opening to say, wait a minute, it's, 
it's not the Wheaties box alone anymore. And that may even be a small part of it. It's the fact that every single student, and I thought the report did a really nice job of saying every single student on any college campus is now a producer. Um, they're creating, they're, they're entrepreneurial in ways that nobody in my generation was. Uh, and then this whole notion of digital content, I mean, Cameo, um, alone is an example of something, um, you know, open doors influencer like this is this is the space social media influencers and I can tell you with a group that was probably somewhere in the market of average age of 52. Um, <laughs> when we first had a panel of social media influencers come in and speak to us last fall. There were some jaws dropping. I think we didn't know the reach. We didn't know the money involved. We didn't know the ease. Um, we didn't know how many people were into it from student athletes and, and students alike. Um, so you almost had to completely do a 180 and change the frame on which we, again, kind of went into this thinking, oh gosh, the top 1% are going to get commercials. Um, and, and I'm really excited. I, I promise I'll get to your actual question at some point. Um, but I'm really excited by the by the opportunities that this own produce your own content gives um, for females and other groups, right? So this, we know where the market is, the market's sexist. Um, you know, you see it for, for marketing and uh, other opportunities for all female professional athletes. They pale in comparison to their male counterparts. Um, but this is an opportunity for people to kind of create their own. And, you know, I, I haven't read much and I don't know in depth, but I read the headline to see that UCLA Gymnastics uh, would be at the leader of some of the digital um, content. And that's awesome. Um, you know, a lot of women athletes, their time to shine is in college because they don't have the pro opportunities that the men have. So I'm really excited. And I think, I think we've got to really shift this thought process of the 1% rule on its head, because that's not reality with 18 to 22 year olds. So, um, so with that, you know, but yes, that also means it's a challenge. Um, this isn't like dating where a licensor just calls one licensee and says, want to do an ad? Um, this is kind of a two-way directional people creating their own content. Um, and, and so in many ways, you know, are there going to be, and the, the word of the week was guardrails? Of course, because unlike any other athletics enterprise, we recruit against each other. Student athletes, prospective student athletes have free choice on where to go. Um, and so we've got to, we've got to have some, you know, it should we be worried about fair market value? Should we be worried about, um, you know, inducements? Should we, you know, all those sort of things were that that's what this second group is really digging into the details of. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I was on the sort of deregulation front um, personally when we went into this and I'm pleasantly surprised. I don't think we're getting caught up in the what ifs. You know, you can, you can almost paralyze yourself if you go, if you say over, well, what if this bad actor, what if this happens, we need to regulate against that. And, um, and if, I think instead we've taken sort of the, the flip approach, which is what's important to us, the academic endeavors, treating them like other students, no pay for play, and then let's let those dictate instead of thinking about what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, it's been, that was, your question was the most fascinating aspect of this for me. Um, was learning about the the digital market and that that everybody's a content producer in diff, in a different way. I thought about it in a really different way. Yeah, and, and it's only going to evolve. And it makes me wonder then two things. Number one, do universities then need to think about enhancing opportunities for students to be creative? In other words, do they create spaces where multiple athletes could come together and create content 
they create a deliberate space for that as part of their experience on campus or in another way do they aggregate all of the student athletes content and put it on one site to be able to promote it to a larger audience i don't know is that too far down the road to be thinking at this point no i don't think it's too far down the road at all i mean i think the primary role of the institution in all of this is going to be to educate the student athletes and there's the you know, there's sort of the education, I think of it as a sword and a shield, right? There's an, there's a education that's the shield, that's how not to violate the rules and how to, um, you know, make, make sure you get good advice from professional service providers and so on and so forth. And then there's the sword, which is how can you leverage? Um, how can you leverage your brand? And I think the good news is, is that most schools have already started doing that for the entire student body. Uh, you know, I mean, communications when I was in college was about journalism or film and television and theater. And it's now about digital storytelling and producing your own content and leveraging. And so I think that's the direction. I know that's the direction our communications and marketing and art departments um, at St. Joe's are going in already. And so I think, again, the good news is, you know, the whole model of this is let's let student athletes take up, uh, advantage of the opportunities that other students are. And so I think most schools are providing a lot of that. Do I think there will be additional um, sessions for student athletes on creating and leveraging your brand? I do, um, under the guise of educating them, that, that's for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, I think you're, you're right to think that schools are gonna get creative in different ways that they can help their student athletes and all students. Well, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time with the podcast and giving us a sense uh, uh, for presidents and trustees and others about where this next step might be and some of the ways that the NCAA has opened up its mindset to consider the new opportunities that, quite frankly, technology has presented us. So thank you. Hey, thanks for having me, Karen. Keep up the great work. Thank you. So now that we've had a chance to hear from a member of the Names, Images, and Likenesses Committee, I want to share with you a letter that Senators Chris Murphy and Cory Booker uh, sent to Mark Emmert, uh, the president of the NCAA, this week. I think it'll enlighten you as to still the large gap that exists between what the NCAA says they want to do and what um, senators and other advocates for more freedoms are asking for. Uh, dear President Emmert, the framework proposed in the final report by the NCAA's Board of Governors Working Group regarding the ability of college athletes to drive compensation from the value of their name, image, and likeness through third-party endorsements rightfully acknowledges the need to significantly reform the existing system. Whether the changes recommended in this report were motivated simply by a desire to stem states' efforts to provide college athletes with greater compensation rights or by a sincere aspiration to help them, is largely immaterial. What matters now is how the NCAA, state legislatures, and Congress proceed from here, and how we work together to repair a broken system that too often puts the interests of college athletic programs and the massive for-profit industries that surround them over the interests of students. Today we write to express our concern that this framework still does not come close to providing college athletes with the rights and opportunities they deserve. Further, as the NCAA looks to Congress for legislative support in modernizing its rules, we believe the broader needs of college athletes, particularly their health and academic opportunities, 
must also be at the center of this conversation about reforming the NCAA's current model. The NCAA's framework for NIL and third-party endorsements represents both a step forward and a step back. Yes, the framework describes a goal of creating the opportunity for athletes to be paid for NIL rights. But it also says that these opportunities will be restricted by what the report calls guardrails. Thus, it remains completely uncertain how the NCAA will determine an athlete's endorsement deal fits within its proposed guardrails and whether those guardrails will be so restrictive, the rules so Byzantine, and the penalties so onerous that students will in fact have no meaningful ability to receive compensation for NIL rights. Further, the report contemplates Congress passing legislation that will grant college athletic programs broad immunities from state regulation and legal claims. These requests are potentially sweeping in scope, and we believe that any protection that Congress grants the NCAA or its members from legislative or legal proceedings should be met with a broad series of reforms that advance college athlete protections. Too many college athletes fall victim to a system that puts their health and safety secondary to winning and generating revenue. Cases of athlete abuse and death across sports remain painfully common, while the coaches involved are often not held to account. Many athletes still end up with medical debt from injuries that athletic programs won't cover or lose their scholarships because of major injuries. Thousands of college athletes still face the unnecessary risk of long-term brain injuries due to the lack of enforceable safety standards and generations of college sports leaders overlooking the consequences of concussions. Meanwhile, too few college athletes receive the full benefit of their scholarships. Graduation rates for athletes at many big-time programs remain well below their peers, and demanding athletic schedules still limit the academic options athletes have. With so many issues affecting the well-being of college athletes, we need reform that provides real protections. We believe that the report's recommendations inadequately address the interests of college athletes. And we further believe that any legal protections granted to NCAA members by Congress should be met with broader reforms that address the health and well-being of athletes. We are encouraged by the NCAA's progress on addressing third-party endorsements. This movement in the right direction is important, but we urge the NCAA to go further in reforming a broken system and we look forward to working with you and your members to this further effect. Sincerely, Cory Booker and Christopher Murphy, United States Senators. So this gives you an interesting way of ana analyzing what the NCAA is saying and what Congress is saying, and the effort to find some common ground in trying to solve this thorny program. Thank you very much for listening. Once again, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope that you'll share some of these uh, podcasts with your colleagues around the country. I think it's important to have a dialogue around college athletics at this very critical time in higher education's uh, growth cycle. And I think there are more things that we ought to be discussing rather than just can we return to sports and can fans come to our games. These are really pivotal moments for college athletics and also for higher education, and they require deeper discussions and deeper debates. Please share. Thanks for listening.